Well, I'm, healing is ongoing. It may be ongoing for the rest of my life. Um, things keep coming up. I have an agreement with my subconscious. Please only bring up things that I need to remember to heal because I'm carrying around enough really bad memories. And sure. I'll be carrying them around for the rest of my life. And I don't want any extras that I don't need to remember. But I had a real whopper come up the last four years that um, it really helped me heal some self-hatred issues. You know? And because, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in a situation where there's a lot of sexual assault, you get angry with your body, really enraged with your body for participating with that in any degree. And I, you know, I just had this thing come up where I just felt this wave of self-hatred come over me in a Walmart looking at some kind of slutty looking girl's clothes. And I, and, I, and I had to work on that for about a year. And the thing that finally healed it, the healing thought that finally came through was um, maybe my body participated to whatever degree uh, because it was afraid that if I didn't, I might not survive the experience. And when I got that at a cellular level, I realized that my body was doing exactly what it needed to do to get me through that experience alive. Mm. I know this is really personal stuff. But I don't mind saying it because if other people that have gone through similar stuff to me hear this, maybe it'll help them. Maybe it'll help them heal. I mean, someday if, you know, if life ever settles down enough and I don't feel like I have to constantly be a digital warrior and uh, at least as much as I can be given my sensitivity to electronics, um, then if I could just relax, then I might get in touch with a friend of mine that does quantum healing hypnosis and try to look at the Mars stuff more. But right now um, I just couldn't handle having any more severe trauma came up. And I'll tell you about the dream that I had that I think was connected to Mars 20 and back. It was a pretty traumatic dream. I had it in 1980, right after I got out of the, uh, the situation at uh, the Nevada test site. And I think I had it in like June or May of 1980. And I had just gotten done, you know, being part of the Tonopah test, uh, test range radar situation out there. It was extremely vivid. And I remember yeah. it just as vividly now as I did in 1980. And that's a lot of years ago. Yeah, well, it's not just secret space program stuff. You know, I was part of a, uh, with Lorian Fenton, you know, she's not terribly good in, in his information. I don't know why people are so down on him, but maybe he's kind of eclipsed their uh, public reception. I don't know. But um, she had a, a conference called the uh, Mind Control and Super Soldier Summit, you know, because Super Soldier is a big part of the, uh, you know, Super Soldier uh, genetic tampering and, and mind control stuff is a big part of the secret space program. Um, it's about, well, I, I guess it kind of harkens back to the 1960s when they started using LSD to see what they could do to create a super soldier. You know, and LSD ended up being a, a mind expanding experience. It was exactly the opposite of what they wanted it to be, you know, yeah. and, uh, but they've been trying to create super soldiers and doing uh, genetic engineering with people and mind control 
types of programming to try to create, you know, someone that will follow orders without question, someone who's not going to be tapping into their conscience or their morality. Uh, they just want somebody to obey orders like yeah. a like a machine. What could I say to them that would catch their attention and make them think twice or three times about what they're doing? And this is what I came up with, if I can kind of go into some of this that I was thinking about last night when I couldn't sleep. Oh, please, yeah, please, please do. do. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, let's have it. Let's start with a history lesson. Let's go back to 1947. Um, and I know some people that don't believe in UFOs yet <laughs> might roll their eyes at this, but roll your eyes away. But I'm going to say it in, in July of 1947, we had the Roswell crash. And it went all around the world in the newspapers. And within three days, boom, they, they brought the hammer down on the story. Oh, suddenly it was a weather balloon, blah, 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 blah. But two short months after that, Truman, President Truman, signed the National Security Act of 1947 into law. And the 1940, that, that National Security Act of 1947 essentially created the shadow government. It created the alphabet agencies of the uh, CIA, the yeah, FBI, um, NSA. It, it created a lot of these al alphabet agencies, and they operated because the secrecy was so. They felt the secrecy was so necessary that they didn't have government or congressional oversight, no public oversight at all. They were allowed to operate in secret, and that's why Eisenhower, in his farewell address, said to beware the military industrial complex. And mm -hmm. once we've got our interview over, I'm gonna look up the, the link for people to see that. I'm also gonna look up the link for uh, President John F. Kennedy's uh, secret societies talk that he yeah. said, yeah. Uh, because people need to see that. They need to review that. They need to understand that this isn't some current event of the last few years. This has been a process that's been in the making since 1947, and I could probably track it back further than that. But I think it, it really is a significant milestone, that National Security Act of 1947. So we have the National Security Act of 1947, created the alphabet agencies, gave them a way to operate without congressional or public oversight, or even presidential oversight, um, because Eisenhower said that in his speech, you know, the threat of the military industrial complex is, uh, it will, will persist, you know? And I don't think he realized just how far gone it was when he even spoke those words. I don't think he really had a, had a grasp of, of just what a foothold it had on our government at that point. And I don't think John F. Kennedy Sr., our president, I don't think he had a really good grasp of just how entrenched it was either. Because if he had, he might still be with us. He might not have gotten assassinated. But I don't think that he was really prepared for how entrenched they were. And when he started trying to do some of the things that Trump is doing now, because mm -hmm. um, I think he tried to start the process that Trump is doing now, and they got him. They took him out before he yeah. could get it, get yeah. it even going. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you don't have clearance for this. Yeah. You know, yeah. what do you mean? I'm like, the president. What? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's kind of how it was. 
and how it how it has been for for decades and decades 1947 to now that's a lot of decades yeah. for this kind of crap to go on and uh so then we had the next thing that came out that's historically uh important to this is the mk ultra and i wish i had the access to look some things up um i wasn't able to do it but there was these uh congressional hearings because i think it was Alan Dulles, I could be wrong, but the director of the CIA, he did a whole mass destruction. Maybe there was a Freedom of Information Act thing that he was trying to avoid, but he destroyed all the documentation he, he had or thought that he had on the MK Ultra and mind control programs. You know, Monarch, uh, MK Ultra, Bluebird, you know, there was so many different names for different types. And... Um, <clears throat> Missed a little part of the history lesson, but we'll we'll get to that in just a minute. Okay, so they tried to uh, wipe out all those papers, but they missed twenty thousand documents, twenty thousand pages of MK Ultra documentation. Missed the the wipe. It missed the destruction, and it came out. There was a congressional hearing about it all, and out of that hearing came this quote from Den Senator Daniel Inouye, where he said. There's a shadowy government with its own Navy, its own Air Force, its own fundraising mechanism, and its own idea of pursuing the national interest free from all checks and balances and indeed free from the law itself. He said that. Yeah, this yeah. was a U.S. Senator. This was not a conspiracy theorist saying this. This was a U.S. Senator of Hawaii saying this after sitting and listening to those MK Ultra hearings go on and on. Okay. Now the other part of the history lesson, we need to kind of go back in time. Okay, World War II is over. And because we know, because all the research and, and interviews and, and work that you guys have done and, and what I've done, we know that the Nazis had incredible technology. technology. Yeah. Incredible technology. And some of it was uh, anti-gravity, you know, and, and ET appearing craft. And things like that um, might be what they called the Foo Fighters, I don't know, during the war. Anyway, because they were, our country was so intent on having some of that technology, they brought a bunch of, Rust, or a bunch of German scientists from the Third Reich, people who were fanatically committed to the Third Reich, they brought them over to our country and they put them to work in our government. In some cases, they gave them American sounding names you know, and kind of wiped their files and everything, but they, they brought them over here. They did that because they wanted to know what they knew about the technology. They wanted the technology. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted the technology. Yeah. They wanted yeah. the secret. They wanted the mind control program information of experimenting on people in concentration camps. Jews and other so-called undesirables were experimented on in concentration camps, and that's how they found out about something called trauma-based mind control. They found out that when a person is severely traumatized, their brain holographically and photogenic, uh, photographically uh, remembers what's happening during the trauma. And then you can also program a specific word. So if you wanted a mind control person, mind controlled person to be like a courier for a message that you didn't want to send over the phone or over email or over any kind of electronic device, you could program that person using trauma 
to remember the message and then have a code word that the operative at the other end would give that mind-controlled person, and then that mind-controlled person would come out with the message. Okay, that's just one use of it. Oh, yeah. There's many, many other ugly, ugly, and nefarious uses for it. And, uh, and, uh, and it's linked in with um, satanic ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy O'Brien, in her book, Transformation of America, speaks of a ritual where she was dressed up as if like for a baptism and she was wearing all white uh, clothes as a young child. And in this ritual, she had blood dumped over her and everything was soaked with red blood. Um, So it's there, there's ritual because the rituals, satanic rituals are extremely traumatizing, especially to children. And uh, so They brought these Nazis over. They wanted to know what they know. And these Nazis, uh, so faithful and fanatical about the Third Reich and and the chosen race and everything else like that, they began to subvert our country from within. And they've had decades and decades and decades to do it. And then they had this National Security Act of 1947 that created a, a curtain of secrecy around what they were doing. So they were free to do what they wanted to do with no accountability whatsoever. None. Well, they were even yeah. put in top positions, even in NASA. You know, yeah. they were. It's, it's pretty horrifying when you yeah. realize what's occurred. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. it wasn't and it wasn't like uh, Hitler. They weren't concerned about losing the war and losing the war on the surface level. They were more concerned about keeping and preserving the tech that they had, the technology that they had and the agreements with the ETs. And it, it bears mentioning here that um, there's stories about Hitler having escaped to, you know, not just South America, Our, yeah. but also uh, going into the inner earth. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. you remember how Corey Good and, and other people from the inner earth have said that you can't go down there if you've eaten any meat. You have to be free of eating any meat for six months. Yeah. Um, Corey said that. I've heard it from other people that uh, from who who say they're from the inner earth. Well, remember that Hitler was a very strict vegetarian. He was a very strict vegetarian. Now, why was that? Was it a philosophical thing? Or was he trying to make sure that he would always have access to be able to go into the inner earth? It's a good yeah. question. Yeah. And yeah. I think that uh, I think it really points to the fact that some of this has a basis in fact about the inner earth and him, him being able to go into the inner earth. Yeah. Um, what's what's the name of that movie that's that's been on Netflix where it's about Hitler having the Nazis having bases on the moon and also an inner earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I forgot the name of it. The uh, iron, iron Sky or something, maybe. It's, I think there's a lot of disclosure in those movies. Yeah. Well, I've been fascinated with Antarctica uh, for many, many years. And I read Richard Byrd's diary Mm. um, and so on and so forth. But then there was other things that were omitted from Richard Byrd's diary, like the the battle that he had where he was defeated by uh, Nazi forces in their ultra modern technology, you know, way, way ahead of time technology. That's in that book, right? Yeah, yeah. Secret Journey to Planet Serpo. It's an amazing book that, that gives some really great details of that Operation mm-hmm. Paperclip. Mm-hmm. If you can remember, please send me the title to that. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. The, the whole book. It's actually, it's about uh, 
a journey to a, another planet, Planet Serpo, that uh, these 12 astronauts stayed there for 10 years, ended up being 13 years, and not all of them returned. Some died, some chose to stay, some came back. But this all happened during Kennedy's era. Yeah. And the book, to preface that, it talks about World War II and the secret space program and how we even got to that point of being able to leave off, to go off planet. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating book. That's kind of what I think what they were, uh, there was the story they were trying to tell with Close Encounters. Yeah, that's exactly it. Actually, because they selected those people to go to the planet with the aliens. Yeah, some of the, mm -hmm. uh, Steven Spielberg, actually, that's part of the book, they uh, they said that script was written in record time and it didn't have to be rewritten, which is never happens in Hollywood. He wrote it in like three days or something in his in his hotel room. And he was clearly having meetings with somebody and they never rewrote the script. So he got it from somebody and mm -hmm. he had that they were actually filming it at some uh, military base in Florida, I think. And he couldn't even get on base without his clearance, Steven Spielberg. And, and if he didn't have it, he had to leave and come back. So mm -hmm. he knew something. And that's what they said there. That scene at the end when they're getting on the ship to leave is a, a, a direct depiction of this Planet Serpo mission which yeah. originally started off as, I think, Project Crystal Knight, I think is what they called it during that time. Yeah. There's another book that I really need to get out and finish. And, you know, I started it and I couldn't get it finished because of other things interfering, but it's called Alien Interview. Mm. Have you heard of that one? I've, I've absolutely, yeah, actually I have heard of it. I've heard, heard of it. it. Yeah. When I did start reading it, I was really amazed by some of the parallels between Stargate SG-1 yeah. and some other things in that book. So I really want to go back and reread it because I've watched Stargate all the way through now at least five or six times. Nice. It's just a fascinating. As I say it's one of the very best soft disclosure series out there. That's one of my favorite shows, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh -huh. I love Stargate SG-1. Yeah, there's a ton of disclosure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. I want to go back and, and read Alien Interview. Um, there are things that tie in from Alien Interview, I believe, with Andrew Bartz's Galactic Historian. He mm. did a, an initial series when he first came into the public awareness, and it was like 20 different programs, I think, with Lance White. And, um, and he went into galactic history in depth. And there were things that he brought out in that that hearkened to also the Alien Interview book. Ancient technology on the planet, on Earth, that is AI, yeah. you know, and, and, it, and it exerts a control over the planet. And I guess some of that tech, some of those technological bases have been taken out and it's left a gap in the field that mm. they had around the planet with these devices. And that gap is allowing us, our evolution and our, you know, breaking free of the mental control. So anyway, kind of the history lesson. So we've looked at um, the National Security Act of 1947, just to recap a little bit. National Security Act of 1947. Um, we looked at Project Paperclip, where all the Nazis were brought over and uh, put to work for our government because we wanted to know all of their secret knowledge. Um, we've looked at the, you know, we, at least we've mentioned the farewell address of President Eisenhower, where he warned against the military industrial complex. We've mentioned John F. Kennedy's speech about secret societies and uh, being, you know, taken over by infiltration and subversion rather than outright, you know, 
military invasion. So those are the kinds of things that we have. All of this stuff historically can be checked out still on the internet. I'm sure the information is still out there on the internet to be checked out. Uh, the videos of JFK and President Eisenhower's farewell address, information on Project Paperclip, um, information on the National Security Act of 1947. Interesting thing about the National Security Act of 1947, the, the curtain of secrecy that it creates around the alphabet agencies and about around shadow government goings on is so tight that if you've been injured, say if I, you know, myself being injured the way that I was in, a black, in these kind of black ops programs, um, if I got all my evidence together and everything and I tried to go in a court of law and get some recompense, you know, get a settlement for what I went through, um, they would throw the case out of court because they would invoke the National Security Act of 1947 and the case would have to be thrown out of court and dismissed for reasons of national security. Because wow. mind control programming is classified under national security. And it's so intense, the secrecy around it is so intense, it relates to national security. Sorry, we can't have any case that goes into that because it touches on national security. But, but you have to ask yourself, who's national security? Exactly. If it's the national security for the people of the United States of America, for the citizens, or is it the security of the alphabet agencies and the people that are trying to keep all this stuff secret for their own nefarious purposes? It's because our world cannot move forward in any meaningful way when we have a global pedophilia network. Our, our world cannot move forward in any meaningful way if people are so controlled that their minds are not even free, let alone their bodies. We're gonna have one size fits all healthcare and there will be no accountability for the people that make the drugs or the vaccines. If they inject you or give you a drug and you are harmed by it or killed or killed by it, there is no, you can't, you can't take them to court because they're protected. Mm -hmm. They have that protection gives them no accountability. And as far as your spiritual beliefs or your religious beliefs, they don't want religion interfering with their control over your mind. They see religion as a threat. So you better listen up and you better understand. You also better understand that if you love your kids, they will take them away from you because they don't want you filling your kids' your kids' heads with, with free thought ideas. They want your kids to be indoctrinated by the state so that if you are not doing everything that the state wants you to do, your kids will turn them in just like Hitler Youth did mm. back in Hitler's era. Okay, this is what we're facing. And if you don't believe me, God help you. You know, you need to get Thanks. off your butt and do some research on the things that I'm talking about, and you will find out that everything I'm saying is verifiable. It is not conspiracy theory. It is fact. So anyway, the things that happened to me, okay, why is this really important to me? Okay, so I'll just give at least a brief synopsis, as brief as I can, about my own experiences, okay? Um, I was kind of going along in my life, and I was in the military for four years, and then I got out, and... Um, was a mom, had two kids, was married, uh, was writing a fiction book and everything else like that. And uh, then I ended up getting divorced because my husband was a control freak, a-hole. <laughs> um, actually, I think he was putting my life to be a handler, to be honest. It was my second husband. Yeah. Um, strange things with that as well. Um, so anyway, um, 
and I worked for government contractors, you know, um, went from the Air Force to working in government contractors. So basically the husband said, wow, EG&G is hiring. You could get a job and then we get a really nice house for, we could, we could, you know, back when the day, you know, that was a lot of money, you could get a hundred thousand dollar house, you know? And I said, I don't want to go to work. I just want to take care of the kids and I want to write my book. Well, if you don't go and get this job, I'm going to divorce you, you know? I said, okay, fine. I'll go wow. get the job. So I went and got the job. And uh, then a year later, I divorced him. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so all this time went by, about nine years went by, and I was out and I was kind of on my own and, you know, being a single mom and things like that. And then I had a friend who we talked about spirituality and UFOs and everything. So it was back in Las Vegas. And uh, we were talking about everything under the sun, just had these great conversations. And he knew I was in the Air Force. And, but I never talked about it. And he, he thought that was odd. You know, he'd bring it up and I'd kind of skate away from it to a different topic. He said, after one afternoon, he said, can you sit and tell me about your military time? You know, is there any problem with that? I said, no, no problem. He said, well, tell me about it. Tell me about it from when you went in to when you got out. I said, no problem. I said, I went in at, uh, uh, to boot camp at Lackland Air Force Base in April of 1979, um, did the boot camp thing. And uh, then my, <clears throat> I went to Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi, and I did my technical training school. That was no big deal, you know, a um, little tough on the math because mathematics doesn't come easily to my mind. <laughs> um, and then... I went home for a while after Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, to be, you know, to kind of pick up my daughter and take her with me to my next duty station, which was an LS Air Force Base in Nevada, in North Las Vegas. And uh, so I got to North Las Vegas with my daughter and I and our things and moved into an apartment. And then I said, and then I got stationed at Tonopah Electronic Warfare Range because I was a surface-to-air missile and anti-aircraft artillery radar operator and maintenance person. And um, and then I said, I and I worked at Tonopah Electronic Warfare Range. And when I said Tonopah Electronic Warfare Range, I stopped talking and I was like, I don't remember anything about working at Tonopah. And I know that I worked there for three to four months. I don't remember anything. Yeah. And I got terrified inside. I had this wave of nausea go over me. I was really scared because I don't have gaps like that in my memory. I have a really good mind and it works really well. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, for many years, my mind had worked like a steel trap, pretty much, you know, intelligent, articulate, everything. And then suddenly four months missing. And then uh, later that year, um, I was at, uh, I volunteered to work at the Whole Life Expo in Las Vegas. And uh, there I ran into a uh, couple of people, notable people, um, Alex Collier. Uh, yeah. I ran into Alex Collier, listened to his talk, fascinating talk and a fascinating man. He's got an ebook out called, um, that's been out for a long time. It's called Defending Sacred Ground, which is our planet. And a yeah. uh, terrific guy. The other guy that I ran into there was uh, Bud Hopkins, the late Bud Hopkins. Yeah. Who really was kind of the groundbreaker doing hypnosis work with, uh, 
ET contactees and, you know, abductees and stuff like that. So I went to see his talk. It was fascinating. And at the end, there was a question and answer. And of course, I raised my hand and I said, okay, well, I have this really weird dream from childhood where I was left alone under a street lamp. Um, I had this uh, other dream about, you know, I forget what I was saying about that. And then I have three months, three or four months of missing time from when I was in the Air Force. And at that point, he says, he says, stop talking. He said, just come and talk to me afterwards. So I went and talked to him afterwards. And there was me and two other people that went to talk to him afterwards. And he agreed to do a hypnosis session on all three of us. So when it became my turn to have a hip, the hypnosis session, a little bit of the missing time spilled out. And... Uh, it was pretty terrifying. Um, he said, well, he says, okay, it's January 19. I'm under hypnosis. He says, okay, it's January of 1980. Uh, where are you? And I said, I'm standing on the deck of the radar van and it's nighttime. And there's two other people here with me, guys. And uh, we're looking up in the sky because there are craft up there that look like UFOs. And um, he said, tell me more about what's going on. I said, okay, well, I said, we had to come out here uh, in the middle of the night to test the radar on special aircraft. And these aircraft could not be tracked. Um, they would literally disappear from the screen and then maybe reappear on our scope someplace else. Um, but it's, it's basically like winking out here and then suddenly winking back on over here on the on the radar screen and uh and i said we were forbidden we were given fatigues to wear with no rank insignia no name tags no identifying marks of any kind we were forbidden our crew the radar crew was forbidden to speak to each other except for uh what was necessary to, to test the radar on these craft and they and we were threatened not to speak to each other and these people had guns and they did brandish them about and uh, make their point. And so I'm standing on the deck of the radar van and I'm thinking to myself, I only have a secret clearance. I don't have top secret. I don't have anything close to a high enough clearance to see this stuff. And I'm scared out of my mind, you know, at what I'm seeing. I was right to be scared. Okay, they put us on a bus painted kind of an Air Force blue with painted over windows. They took us to a facility that was either Area 51 with uh, with underground facilities at it, or they took me, they took us, not me, but us. And there was other people on the bus too, besides the two guys that were with me. Um, there was another place William Pollack talked about in his uh, posthumous interview with Stephen Greer, which was an underground facility that existed at the Tonopah facility. Now, Tonopah is actually a town in northern Nevada, but Tonopah is also a facility out on the Nevada test site. And apparently, according to William Pollock, it had underground facilities as well. So I could have been taken either place. I don't know. At first, because I didn't know about the uh, Tonopah facility, I always said it was Area 51, but I just mentioned that it could have been either place. So we were taken there, uh, taken off the bus, uh, taken into a medical dispensary type of place. Um, medical dispensary is like 
more like a doctor's office, not quite a hospital. And uh, there were chairs. Um, you've read my book. There's a picture of one of the chairs in my book, you know, because I ran into those chairs someplace else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, um, we sat down, we were told to sit down in these chairs, the lights were off in the room, and the only light coming in was there was these double doors behind us, behind where we were seating, and they had two big windows in them, and the lights in that hallway were on, and those lights were shining into the room, but all the lights were not turned on in the room. And I think that there was the darkness and uh, for being forbidden to speak to each other, it was a way to effectively isolate us from each other to keep us from comparing notes that we might trigger memory later. Um, And interestingly enough, uh, Dan Sherman's book, Above Black, he talks about the same thing. He was trained as an intuitive communicator to communicate telepathically with extraterrestrials who were picking people up in abductions and doing procedures on them. And he had one other trainee that he trained with and he said the same thing. We were isolated. We were trained in the same room, but we were isolated from each other because we were absolutely forbidden to speak to each other. So there's another instance of yeah. uh, somebody yeah. in the military being isolated in that way. Yeah. So we went into this room. I'm sitting in the waiting room, um, scared out of my mind, not knowing what's coming next. And uh, one by one, they call people off into this little side room. Um, and finally it was my turn to go in there. I was told to lay down on a stainless steel examining table. It looked like something out of the 1940s or fifties. Um, just had kind of an antique sort of appearance. Um, and I didn't have to take anything off. I just had to lay down there fully clothed. So I laid down, there was a armed security guard with a, a sidearm standing at parade rest in the room, keeping an eye on me. Um, I waited there on that table for God knows how long. I, you know, not terribly long because this all had to transpire within the middle of the night. Um, but it seemed like a long time when you don't have a timepiece. Yeah. And uh, finally, a guy in a white lab coat comes through through the same door I came through, walks past the security guard at the foot of the table where my feet were, were at that end, walks around the right side of me and said, stay calm in a real deadpan, deadpan monotone voice three times. And when he got up beside the right side of my head, um, one smooth move, he came up and he injected me in the side of the neck with this chemical. And uh, it's like he had the hypodermic needle hidden in the sleeve of his lab coat. And whatever the chemical was, it went from whatever the artery here straight to the brain, and it put me immediately into, into shock. And I don't really know how to describe it. I can describe the aftermath of it a little bit better. But it just it just went into me and I was like in shock. Um, the only thing that in a movie that I saw that reminded me very much of this experience was that movie Lucy starring Scarlett Johansson. Oh, yeah. 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 And she got that blue chemical. Uh, it was kind of fluorescent blue. The chemical that I was injected with was fluorescent green. And she was in shock. You know, it, it started doing things to her. Well, there's something to do with it where it could make people telekinetic 
or it could have an effect on the person that could spill over onto the people around them, even if they haven't taken the drug. Because what happened next was, while I was in shock, these two security guards appeared on either side of me, taking me under, under each arm, getting me up off the table and taking me down out a different doorway out of that room and down a very long staircase. At the bottom of that staircase, I was shoved into a little room uh, or booth or something. It had, I noticed that it had uh, mirrors, mirrored windows on it. Two-way mirrors, yeah. And I thought, that's one-way mirrors. That's got to be one-way mirrors. You know, mirror on my side and, and people watching me. And so I, I'm pretty sure they watched me go through the effects of the injection through those mirrors. But why? Unless there was some something that could spill over onto them, why put me in that little booth and watch from there? Yeah. And it did the same thing in the movie. When she opened that briefcase, everybody was hiding behind these uh, screens. They had these uh, barriers up, remember? And uh, so anyway, I went through the effects of that injection in this little booth. And when it, and it was like, I mean, I laid on the floor, curled up in a ball, screaming because the sensation that was going through me was horrible. It was, um, I used to describe it as feeling like my body was coming apart at the molecular level and it was going to just kind of run through a drain in the floor. That's how it felt. It didn't actually happen that way. Um, but, you know, after years of putting the memories back together, I realize now that the way that my body was feeling was like it had been shot up with Novocaine way, 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 way more than you would get at a dentist office. And then that feeling that you get when you, the Novocaine starts to wear off, multiply that times 100 or 1,000. And it's going over your whole body, all those pin, a terrible pins and needle feeling that's happening over your whole body. And it's so intense that you can hardly stand it. And all you can do is lay there and scream until you can't scream anymore. And then you're exhausted and you're just laying there waiting for it to be over. Then I was pulled out of that room and I was sexually assaulted by those two security guards. And eight people watched. I thought about that for many years, too, for quite a few years. I thought, why would they have eight people watch? Why would they have eight people watch? Finally, I figured it out because these people didn't look very happy to see what they were seeing. But I'm pretty sure they were in there seeing it because they were under threat that if you ever go out of this facility and talk about the work that you do or the things you're working on here, this is what's going to happen to your wives, your daughters, your sisters, maybe even your mother. This is what will happen to people that you love if you go out of this facility and talk. One of the thing, one of the people watching was a gray ET of the tall variety. And uh, another guy who's now passed on, uh, Bill Uhouse, he also spoke of a tall gray extraterrestrial that worked at Area 51 alongside the scientists as a technological advisor. So it tracks that me seeing this ET, I wasn't the only one to see an ET at, at Area 51. So it, there's a, a, an outside confirmation of that. I remember being really angry about what's happening to me because I was the little girl on my street who would beat up all the bullies. And when I wrestled them to the ground, they didn't get up till I said they got up. Oh, you know? nice. So um, I'm not a person that was used to being controlled this way or being treated this way. And I remember the thought going through my head, if someone in this room drops their 
like one of these guards drops their guard for one second, I'm going to get a gun and everybody in this goddamn room is going down. Yeah. Every single one of the people in this room, including that gray ET, they're all going down. You know, of course, I didn't get all of the gun, but that was my thought. Sure, you know? understandably. And uh, after that, I think they gave me some other kind of drug to aid in mind wiping. And, I, and just a, a little aside to that, when I was reading a book on chaos theory, years and years later, um, I came across a little passage in the book talking about Los Alamos National Labs, which was a presence on the Nevada test site, uh, doing experiments with chaos theory and the brain and drugs for the brain. And that was extremely disturbing just to read that little passage, realizing what had happened to me out there. Yeah. So anyway, they gave me a drug that seemed to, you know, if I woke up and remembered anything about my experience the night before, it might have seemed like a very vague dream. I think that I was chosen because I had childhood abductions by the grays. Yeah. So mm -hmm. my mind had already been touched uh, yeah. by telepathy from these beings. I think they also chose me because I've always been a spiritual person from the cradle up. Um, I, I was a spiritual person before I knew the word spiritual as a little child. Um, and I think that the chemical that they gave me in that injection, I don't know why, I just I just really feel strongly about this and I'm not sure why. I, know, I don't remember anybody telling me anything about it. But I think it was, they, I think they were trying, I didn't put this in my book because I hadn't quite figured it out at that time. But I think they were trying to create a chemical ascension process. Yeah. You know, I mean, on the surface, I'm sure they treat the ascension, the whole ascension phenomenon as frou-frou, you know, woo-woo stuff. Um, but on another level, they're thinking, wow, if people really do ascend to, if spiritual people who are developing themselves spiritually really do ascend to a higher plane of existence, we want to go there too kind of like the Borg Queen invading uh, Unimatrix Zero. They want to go there yeah. without doing the work, though. That's yeah, they want to do that without yeah. doing the spiritual work. They want to be able to go there. Yeah. And so I think that's what it was. And I thought, and I'm thinking maybe because I'm really a spiritual person and have a particular outlook, maybe they thought if the, if the drug was going to be successful, maybe it would be most successful on someone like myself who already... Yeah, trying to develop herself spiritually. Yeah. So I think that was part of it. Um, then over the three months period, all kinds of other things happened, like being taken to the moon, most likely multiple times. Um, I was a blonde security guard with uh, very cold blue eyes. I kind of think they may have dragged them out of like a sociopath that they might have got out of prison said, well, if you come to work for us, you can do all kinds of stuff that you like to do and get paid for it. You just have to do what we tell you to do. He said, sure, I'll do that. So anyway, it's really very sociopathic individual, really liked hurting, really liked uh, sexually assaulting. And some of the things that he would do uh, was, uh, these were some of the memories that have come back over the last four years that have been really hard to cope with. Um, he would sexually assault me and choke me or smother me until I lost consciousness. And me never knowing if I was ever going to wake up again, if I was ever going to see my little four-year-old girl again. 
And uh, so anyway, um, the memories of the last four years have pretty much put any idea that I can ever be close to another human being. Those, I, those feelings have gone up in smoke. You know, it's that part of my life is just ashes at this point because I can't, I just don't think I can get close to someone in that way again after dealing with uh, some of the things that have happened. So anyway, back to going to the moon, um, you know, that was another thing where uh, this blonde security guard would take me to the hangar and he gave me this suit of clothes to wear that really reminds me of the cover of one, or do, one of Dr. Sala's books where there's a, a man and he's facing an ET woman that has a silvery suit that's very form-fitting. Yep. Yeah. That's what that was like. They gave me these clothes to put on. I had to take everything off and just put those clothes on. And it served like, like a, a form-fitting EVA suit, you know, but it was really big and baggy and loose until you put it on and then it just formed itself to your body really really snug like it just kind of vacuum packed on okay. and there were boots that went to it there were gloves that went to it and then after that I got aboard the craft which I had to climb up uh, kind of a stairs or, or you know ladder up into the craft when I got in there uh, they said we want you to lay down on the floor in this particular place um, the chairs are for, you know, officers that were taking to the moon. You're just supposed to lay down. I laid down between these other two guys that were also going to the moon. We just laid on the floor like cargo. The thing took off. And for just a couple of seconds, there was a gravity sort of feeling as it was accelerating up, you know, that kind of felt like I was pressed down into the floor for just a few seconds until the anti-gravity stuff kicked in and then it was normal. And it didn't take very long to get to the moon. I can't say how long it actually took. I keep saying like 20 minutes, which our astronauts took much longer to get to the moon than 20 minutes. I, I really had a very strong sense that um, my, my time perception was as warped as whatever the craft was warping to go to the moon. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like that. And I think Ralph Ring and Otis Carr, when they had their one little flight of the craft that they built um, before the shadow government swooped in and broke up their team and took the technology and said, never speak to each other again. Their sense of time when they did that one little trip in their craft was, was also altered. It was very hard to keep in their mind what the sense of time was Yeah, that when they made that short little trip. So um, anyway, once we got to the moon, we were told to get off the craft and walk straight ahead to the building in front of us. We were not to look to the right or the left or to up or down. We're just supposed to keep our eyes straight ahead and go straight to that building. Well, me being me, I walked, my head was straight ahead. My eyes were mostly straight ahead, but I was like, I'm breathing and there's no, I don't have breathing equipment on. Is there like a dome overhead or is there air on the moon? You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm like kind of my eyes going up <laughs> like that, yeah. you know, and not to the right or the left, but I was like just looking up because I, I was confused, you know, because I thought there was no air on the moon. There is air on Mars. I don't think it's yeah. like 
earth. I think it's like high altitude, thin atmosphere. So I did just a little aside. I did a hypnosis session with my friend that does the quantum healing hypnosis uh, over in Durango. And I said, I want to know about whether there was atmosphere on Mars or whether I was under a dome. And so she asked me about it when I was under the hypnosis and I didn't get an answer in verb in, you know, any kind of verbiage or words. What I got was an image and the image was of this gray green algae that was growing on the surface of Mars. And it was in any place where the sun hit it directly, which wasn't really that much on the dark side of the moon. But where the sun would hit it directly, it didn't grow so good. But it grew really good in all the cracks and crevices where light hardly ever touched. And it made a thin atmosphere on the moon. And uh, so that was real interesting that I got that little image. And, you know, I've been kind of looking for some outward confirmation, other confirmation that maybe somebody else has got that. But interestingly enough, there is a movie out about the red planet starring Val Kilmer. Oh, yeah, I've seen that movie. They sent this algae to try to terraform Mars and create an atmosphere. And then these bugs ate the the algae, but the bugs made oxygen. So anyway, this idea of algae helping to terraform an alien planet or a moon is at least it was explored in that film. But I'm still waiting for somebody that knows something directly about that algae. And then uh, basically the rest of my time on the moon was spent either working hard at manual labor. I think I did some technological labor while I was there, like operated some equipment. Um, It was excavation equipment to make like new landing pads and new building sites. And it was electromagnetic in, in nature. And it involved these two huge, I mean, like maybe an acre big, you know, uh, electromagnetic plates and they would some they'd be together like this and somehow you turn on the equipment and they would kind of vibrate themselves down into the dirt or the earth or the the moon's surface they just kind of vibrate down in and then you would turn on the electromagnetic generator and it would generate like two south pole polarities in the plates and the plates would push apart because the two south poles together on a magnet they repel so it just pushed them apart and it was so the the magnetic fields were so controlled it would just push them equally and evenly apart and because they were embedded down on the surface they would excavate this huge flat surface and then it would be a building site for whatever they wanted to put there like it would just push any of this crust out of the way exactly just piled up or was it like it would pile it up you know it would just like I said, it would vibrate down into the earth yeah. and then part of it would be sticking up so it wouldn't spill back in. And then it would just push apart like two poles of a magnet that were similar and repelling. And it would just ex- excavate a big flat area. Um, I did a little bit of that. Mostly I just did manual labor, which seemed like a lot of moving boxes around or crates and uh, moving them from here to there, or moving supplies from one area into another area. And then at night, I wasn't allowed to sleep. Um, I was uh, passed around for sexual entertainment. Human trafficking, whether it's done on the planet or whether I was taken to the moon and used for these kinds of purposes and everything else like that, it's human trafficking. That's why this touches on me in such a personal way 
when I hear stuff about children being trafficked and people being trafficked and being rescued, I'm thinking, thank God, thank God somebody is getting these children out of this. Thank God somebody is doing to end human trafficking, you know, and that's President Trump. He's working to end that. How could I not support a man who's trying to end human trafficking? How could anyone not support a man who is trying to end human trafficking? It's the worst crime imaginable. It's the worst crime imaginable. Well, I'm not sure how that's all going to come out, but I don't think that there's too many places they really can run and hide. Yeah, I don't think maybe so. Maybe some of them, maybe some of them can get off planet, but um, I don't think that they can. I think that they're and and we hear stories about people wearing anklets and wearing clothes to kind of hide the fact that they're wearing an anklet. Yeah, they may yeah. have some of these people under lockdown with these anklets. Mm-hmm, they can't go anywhere. But um, the the way that I got out of the moon. Um, and this relates to something very esoteric, and some people may not want to believe it or not. That's their choice. But um, I'm like one of Dolores Cannon's star seeds. You know, I came here from a star family. I chose to be incarnated as human. I was in what she calls the first wave of volunteer souls. Well, what happened for me? Let's just go into what happened for me. So I did a hypnosis session with Mary Rodwell in 2000. 10, 2011. And uh, it was really a wonderful session. I actually got to go on the Laren ship and see my Laren people, which is, that's my star, you know, soul lineage is, is Laren. I saw the commander of the ship, but he wasn't like a military commander at all. He was more like a, a loving, loving father figure that watched over everybody on the ship. And he says, we're going to take an astral travel. He says, I'm going to take you to Mars and then I'm going to take you to the moon. Went over, we went to Mars and we were flying in the astral forum over Mars. And we, he showed me that there were human archaeological digs happening in the Sidonia area of the face on Mars and the pyramids on Mars. Oh, so yeah. Archaeological digs. That's what uh, John Vivanco confirmed via remote viewing. Yeah. We just talked about this yeah. last week. Okay, well, that's cool to hear that, you know. Yeah. And, um, and they also, he also showed me somehow that there were above ground and below ground uh, you know, living and working facilities on Mars. And um, and I think that they're, they're there, even there, looking for alien technology that can be weaponized. You know, I'm sure that a lot of it is just for pure intellectual interest, but I think the other agenda is trying to find technology that they can weaponize and use. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. And, and a lot of it, I think, is uh, something Corey touches on is about they're, they're actually fascinated in the learning about this ancient builder race because they don't yeah. know much about them mm-hmm. uh, they don't have any written language except for that Amuamua craft that came in a couple of years back whenever yeah. they were able to get on there there was bodies in stasis and they were more interested in the writing on the wall because they had no document no record of these people's written language this is the mm-hmm. first time they had ever gotten it yeah so mm-hmm. i think that they're by them doing that excavation and stuff on Mars, I'm sure they're trying to find out as much about this ancient builder race as possible. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's archaeological digs going on all over Mars, any place where there is a hint of a previous uh, civilization. And of course, we know uh, generally most people that are into this subject know that there was uh, a planet between Mars and Jupiter that in some kind of uh, ancient interstellar war or inner... You know, yeah, Malbec, Malbec, was blown yeah. up 
Yeah. And I think a huge chunk of it must have grazed the surface of Mars and created Mariner Valley because when you look at look at Mariner Valley on Mars, it looks like nothing so much as a valley. It looks exactly like something just gouged through the surface of Mars and made this big crevice. From, and I'm sure that was a chunk of Marduk when it exploded. It just and it probably really screwed up the planet for the, the people that were living there at the time. And they had to either leave or go underground to live. So then the next thing that this commander father figure said, now we're going to go to the moon and we're going to visit the moon in the past when you were there. And the things that were happening to you there were happening. And I said, I don't really want to go anywhere near that place. I just want to stay away from it. He says, you need to see what I'm going to show you. And he, he said, don't worry, you're going to be safe. So we went there and kind of hovering above in the astral. Um, he showed me an exchange that happened between a very tall willowy ET uh, and an officer that was kind of in charge of my time on the moon. And the tall willowy ET was having a telepathic exchange with the officer. And he was, and he could see me when I was walking around. He could see me and he could see in my aura the galactic family that I was connected to, which was the Lyrans. And this ET said telepathically to this guy, you have no idea who you have there. You realize that everything you're doing to her gets reported back to her people. And, uh, and I have a very strong feeling, I haven't had any outer confirmation of it yet, but a very strong feeling that there is some kind of treaty or some kind of agreement between uh, the United States government and uh, the Lyran people, that their people are not to be tampered with. And that includes people, Lyrans, that have chosen to incarnate in a human form. But anyway, that got me out of it. You know, yeah. they thought, oh shit, you know, we didn't realize. They took, her, they took me back to earth. They did everything to wipe my memory and they turned me loose. And that's how, that's how I got out of it, apparently. And it was it was an important thing for me to see, and it was an important thing for me to understand. And yeah. uh, I'm glad that I did understand it. Um, and so now here I am. You know, um, it's been a long journey uh, learning to live with these kind of memories because the memories are they're so traumatic and they're so cruel that when I first got the memories back, I started having memories come back. Uh, I remember just sitting on my sofa, kind of rocking back and forth, thinking, how in the hell am I going to go on living with this? And the only reason I was able to is because I know suicide is a trap. You know, my whole spiritual life has shown me that suicide is not an escape. It is a, it is a trap. It is a way to make everything a thousand times worse for you, um, uh, for your soul's journey through the cosmos, let's say. Basically, you get stuck in a in a place that you can stay there stuck a really long time, especially if you have a very strong will and you will yourself to keep remembering. So um, whatever way you decided to commit suicide, you could find yourself on the other side, keeping trying to do that method of suicide over and over and over again. And then finally, after you've done it however many hundreds or millions of times, then maybe the thought just kind of creeps in, why can't I get the job done? It seems like I've been trying to do this and then I find myself right back in the same 
place trying to do it again what's going on and when when you have that much of a break in your when your will you have that much a break in your ability to question what's going on then there's all kinds of souls around you that rush in and say we've been waiting for you to make this realization now we're here to help you out this is my life purpose this is why i incarnated as a lyran into human to go through this i'm fulfilling my life purpose in doing this and that may sound really weird to people sorry I used to really have a funny feeling about people that said, oh, I'm on a mission, you know, and everything else like that. But then when when my mission became clear to me, then I understood people who say they came with a mission, you know, because this it's been my mission to come here, to have these experiences. And these experiences have helped me deal with karma that I needed to clear. So there's been a purpose to them that way. Um and then I had these experiences and I spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand why they happened. I had no intention of going public because, you know, just to make a crack a little joke here, but it was kind of a serious, half serious, half joke kind of thing. I said, if I ever go public with this, my only job opportunity in front of me is going to be speaking at UFO conferences. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the very best I can to keep my ego out of my mission. I've done the very best I can. Um, I think I've done a pretty good job. But then sometimes when I think about, you know, I've had a strong desire before all this stuff came up over the last four years and with Trump being president, I really thought about stepping away from public life and just thinking, you know, I'd like to just stay home and, and, and do my gardening and do my artwork and be a dog mom. I'd like to do that and nothing more, you know? But then all this stuff came up with President Trump and him being elected and all this these things. And I thought, you have to step in and be one of these digital warriors. You just have to because of the things you know. And so no retirement yet. You're choosing, a re you're choosing to invest it yourself and your energy in a reality where human trafficking is going to end. And people and children aren't going to be harmed that way. You know, you're choosing to invest yourself in a reality where maybe we will have a new financial system that doesn't enslave people. We're choosing to live in a reality where we might have be free from fossil fuels and uh, full disclosure could happen and free energy technology could be brought forward. I mean, we're, we are choosing a whole new reality. And that's really huge. And if you look at the Q movement, it's worldwide. There are millions and millions of people worldwide that are hanging on this whole thing, waiting for things to play out. And everybody is praying and hoping that it turns out. And you know, the one thing that's common to all those people is a desire to live in a free world. If that's not a unity consciousness movement, I don't know what is. It's beautiful. beautiful. And we got to support that. We got to support that. You know, I mean, the, the New World Order, they aren't even trying to hide who they who or what they are anymore. They're coming no. right out with stuff. The UN website changed now to the UN uh, www or UN New World Order org. You know, I mean, that's yeah. the website now. I mean, they're not even trying to hide it. They can't afford it. They can't afford to hide it. They don't, they can't afford to do this covertly. The it, censorship is just yeah, way more than I've ever seen. It's off. As, as aggravating as censorship is, um, 
it just it just tells all of us just how terrified they are yeah. of the things that are coming out. So we we got to we've got to use everything in our power to keep this message suppressed and everything else like that. But it's not going to suppress. Mm-mm. It's just well, going to find another way out. Well, it's already backfiring. Yeah, on there. I, it's funny because the more they try to stop it, the more it's backfiring. So the I'm just like, yeah, keep, yeah, the Streisand effect, exactly. The harder they try to fight this, the more it's gonna it's, put eyes on. It. The faster it's gonna wake people up. In my opinion, I'm already seeing it, and uh, so it's kind of like they're their own downfall. I mean, it's gonna happen no matter what, but they're like speeding it up, and everything they're doing. I mean, they kind of sealed their own demise a long time ago, but they're kind of freaking out right now because they see everyone waking up and they're being taken out actively. Obviously they've been for a while and they're literally scrambling and just like freaking out. Right? They've chosen to go against life for a very yeah. long time with their satanic rituals yeah, and their dark way of doing things and trying to steal the energy and the essence of other living beings to prop themselves up and, and, and keep themselves going uh, long after they should have aged and died. You know, they've been doing this for a long time. It's absolutely against the conscious living and loving universe itself. It's even against the free energy principle. Free energy is Mm self-renewing. You know, it just keeps making more of itself. It's it's the way the universe is set up. And there is such uh, an absolute marriage that people may not really understand between free energy and its endless renewable. It's an endlessly renewable resource and love which is also an endlessly renewable resource. And I know this from doing drumming and dance workshops. Okay. When we would, I would have people drum and dance their emotions. And when they were, let's just take drumming. Okay. If you're doing, if you're drumming, you're out your negative emotions, usually clear your negative emotions within five to seven minutes, drumming the rhythm of them out of your body under the drum. Five to seven minutes, pretty much it. Maybe in a rare case, you'll get somebody that could go 10 minutes with their anger and their rage and their fear and everything else like that. But but after that, once that five to seven minute threshold has been hit, then the rhythm changes into something renewable, something joyful, something that just keeps renewing itself. And then there's no limit to how long you can drum except you know your hands are going to get tired and you're going to have to drop the drumsticks or, or stop with the hands. Sure. That's it. But I've watched it happen time after time after time in the drumming and dance workshops I used to do years ago. You know, the negative emotions, they're spent very quickly. Entropy, that's what it's called. And then the other rhythm comes in and it's a joy rhythm. It's a, it's a love rhythm and it just keeps making more of itself. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just all jamming together and we're just enjoying it and then finally we get so tired we just can't do it anymore and then it's like ah you know (laughs) this wonderful (laughs) energy that we're just that we've just bathed in together in all this time and i wish that i could do those drumming and dance workshops again and if i ever get well enough and start getting rested enough i will yes if i'm 65 years old or what i'll keep doing it and you know me i was you know an older lady and i was at the dimensions of disclosure yeah, running around the whole place. Around that whole time, you know. Yeah. I was out of breath at the end of it, but I did it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was still pretty tired and not doing so well back then. <laughs> but the energy carried me to yeah. do it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, it's really there. And I just I just hope that I can bring more of that out because 
just like the, uh, it's an important part of generating unity consciousness. You know, mass meditations for world peace or healing or whatever, world healing, that's the passive path of unity consciousness. The drumming and dance is an active path of unity consciousness. And I think both could work together really well. You know, the quiet, passive meditation and then the active drumming and dance and just really, you know, working to clear all your negative emotions and then you're just like a a sun that can go supernova. And then if you're in a group of of people that feel like sun's going supernova with positive energy that they're generating, and then you release a powerful intention with that wave of energy, talk about changing the world. Oh, yeah. We can change this world. For people that have trouble with me saying that I've been to the moon, you know, people are saying, oh, that's just crazy. I'm done listening. Well, if you're still listening, um, I will tell you, there. I did all the research to not find out just about my experiences, but again, the political and social context in which they happened. And in the disclosure project that was done by Stephen Greer, there were whistleblowers that came forward talking about structures on the moon, talking about photos from the moon where buildings on the moon were airbrushed out so they would be scrubbed up and clean for the public to look at. Um, there have been people that talk about 20 and back programs that go, I mean, the information is there. There was Gary McKinnon, uh, mm-hmm. the UK hacker mm-hmm. that hacked into uh, the Naval database and found a list of non-terrestrial officers. That means off earth, not of earth officers and a naval space-based fleet. You know, when I make my claim, it's within a much larger context of all kinds of other whistleblowers that have given their little pieces of what is happening off this planet. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't you don't have to believe me, but I hope that you're interested enough and your interest is piqued enough to go out there and do your own research and find some of the puzzle pieces that I've put together over the years to give my story some weight and some credence. And I wrote a book, it's called uh, Facing the Shadow, Embracing the Light, A Journey of Spirit Retrieval and Awakening. Uh, Aaron has read it, he really enjoyed it. Amazing, uh, everyone go buy it. it. Yeah, so and um, I've recently, uh, in the last year, I've made a free copy to anybody that wants to, to read it, that suffers so for whatever reason, they can't afford $22 for the book on Amazon. Um, they can go to my website, Facing the Shadow, Embracing the Light, and download a copy of the book in PDF format. Because the information is so important that I think everybody really needs to have it. There's not just information about my experiences and my trauma and everything. Part three is called Awakening. It's all about consciousness. It's all about where our world could go. It's all about how vital and critical we are as human beings and how when we unify our consciousness there's nothing that can stand against us and you got to think of it this way the world we see around us with all of its controls and all the negative things that it's happening that is a product of our collective consciousness yeah only it's collective consciousness that has been indoctrinated which is a level of mind control it's had all kinds of indoctrination from the cradle to the grave that has indoctrinated us as a mass collective unconscious to create a programmed reality from our collective consciousness. 
Mm-hmm. The elites aren't making this reality. They're making us create this reality for them by yeah. indoctrinating and using mind con- mass mind control techniques on our minds. Yep. So that means that we have the keys to the castle. We have the keys to our own freedom, but we have to we have to wield this together. We can't just separately go do it. We have to join our consciousness together in a unified manner, and then we can make the change. Yes. But we, we can't do it separately, and it's a it's a power that we have to wield in love, else it won't work. Anyway, it's a kind of love that I would term agape. You know, it's kind of a divine, yeah. higher sort of love where we just all realize we're all human beings. We all want to be free. We all want to be happy. We all want to have our needs met in a particular way that's really healthy for us. We all come together in a divine sort of love with that kind of intention. And I would just say to everybody that if you want to be part of a unity consciousness movement, every time you see something negative going on in the world, give it your heart space for at least a minute, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, just kind of say, yeah, oh, that, you know, that poor child that I just saw in that video that's being abused, you know, by the pedophiles. I send that child my heart energy. And then take that same traumatic thing that you just watched and make a vision in your mind of exactly the opposite. See that child happy and dancing and free and healed or see, or whatever else you see. Like if you see chemtrails in the sky, you know, give it your heart space and acknowledge what's really there and then turn it 180 degree, 180 degrees around in your mind and visualize a, a perfect blue sky with no chemtrails and do that with anything you see on the planet that is not optimal, that is not perfect, that is against life. Just give it your heart space for a few minutes and then turn it completely around and see it exactly the opposite, whole, healed, healthy, happy, everywhere. Any, you can do it with anything and it can be a spiritual practice that you can do with throughout your day. Yep. And if everybody does this, it will become a unity consciousness movement of moving us from and being an enslaved people whose conscious, very consciousness has been enslaved and indoctrinated for thousands, if not millions of years, to being free-minded and creating the world that we were meant to have and fulfilling our destiny of who we're meant to really be. We are not meant to be controlled, mind-controlled things in some kind of matrix where we're the ones building the, ma- building the matrix from our mind because we've been indoctrinated, Okay. We're, we're meant to be something so much more. We have, the, we have the genetics of 22 different ET species in our genetics. Just imagine what lays within those genetics that we could begin to manifest if we can throw off the enslavement. Just waiting to yeah. be activated. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it's activated through positive emotions and love. The frequency yeah. of positive emotions, joy and love, Moving through the DNA turns on a whole bunch more of those codons. Mm-hmm. They, they serve up fear porn on a regular basis because they're really afraid that if we generate too much love and joy, we're going to turn on all that DNA and all of its amazing potential. So they keep us afraid. Uh, yeah. You know, That's it was an experiment works. done by Greg Braden, you know? Yeah. 